Good morning. My name is Adam. I am the executive director at The Factory, uh, right up the road. Uh, before we jump in, I, that announcement, uh, thank you, Tim, for uh, the front porch. I want to just take time to honor this church and thank you for your support of The Factory. Uh, let me put it, kind of frame it in this context, in that announcement that Tim made, and talk to you how important that is. How many of you in this room, let me ask it this way, how many of you have never been in a mosque? Never, ever walked through the doors of a mosque. Now, I want you to picture, if, if you will, for me, next weekend, instead of coming here to Grace Point, you went down into Lancaster to go to a mosque. Probably most of you, think about how you would feel approaching that building. In fact, most of you, as you approached it, might, might, not even know to take off your what before you enter? Your shoes, right? Most of you think, and then you start to approach the building, I gotta take my shoes off? Oh shoot, I wore the wrong socks today. This is not the way this should go. I share that to say, those of you who grew up in a church environment or who are used to coming here week in and week out, this is very comfortable and normal. If you have not and you've never been in here, this is really weird. So I cannot thank you enough for being a church that's willing to do what it takes to say, how do we walk with and reach those around us? How do we help them connect with God in a way that, that we can meet them on their turf and we can begin to break down some of these weird walls and let them see, hey, we're just like they are. We're people. Uh, we found a relationship with someone we love, and we want to help them find that same relationship. So thank you, Tim. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for the support of the factory it means a ton uh, to me in the role that I'm in. Now, with that said, um, it kind of leads into actually where I'm going to kind of what I'm going to talk about this morning. I was a pastor before I was the director of the, uh, uh, the factory. I loved being a pastor, and one of the things that really gripped my heart as a pastor was this reality that um, the 2020 census is coming around here shortly, but when you think about censuses and you think about data and, and when they try and collectively grab and look at an area and look at the United States and think what motivates people and where people add and all that, one of the things that often gets asked on surveys is what religious affiliation are you? And you have these boxes that you can check. Well, one of the boxes on many of these surveys is just simply this word, none. Over the last 25 years, that box has been getting checked in an alarmingly increasing way. More and more people than ever before are, are just saying, you know what, I'm a part of the nuns is what, they're, is what we're kind of labeling them. And people are exiting and leaving the church or not even coming in. It's actually quite, when you really look at it, you go home and Google it, the statistics are quite alarming. So as a pastor, that always gripped my heart. It was always my passion and my drive is to help the churches that I led to connect with that part of the world. That part, I believe the church is the hope of the world because we steward the message of Jesus Christ. So as I would engage the nuns and engage those that are disconnected, and as some of you do the same, you walk with them at school, you walk with them at work, you sit with them around the dinner table, those who would say, I am not associated with the church, I'm not connected with God, maybe you interact with someone who's an atheist, you say, I don't want anything to do with God, I don't even think he exists. When you interact with those people, what do you hear them say? Is Have you ever asked the question, why do you not attend church? Have you ever asked that? You hear all kinds of interesting stuff. 
A lot of times you hear things about suffering. That's a really big one in today's world. You're trying to tell me God is a good and loving God when, when we have the stuff that we have and we have the things that are happening to me. No, God is not and cannot be a good and loving God. You're trying to tell me God's in control and God's, and they get into science and all this kind of stuff. But one of the ones that I've heard for years, and it's the one that I use to walk away from the church, is this. The church is full of what? Hey, you guys know this, right? The church is full of hypocrites. Now, what is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? It says one thing and does another, right? So hypocrite, if I'm a hypocrite, I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to preach something to you and I'm going to say I believe it and then I go and live something very different. Now, let me ask this question of you, if you'll, if you'll <laughs> humor me. Are you a hypocrite? I love it. I wasn't expecting an answer. <laughs> just, okay, time to go home. You just ruined my whole message. <laughs> How do you feel saying that? Some of you just said yes really quick. The second question I actually have written here is, is when you think about that answer, what does it make you feel? Because if someone asked you, are, Adam, are you a hypocrite? What am I feeling inside of me? Not just what am I thinking intellectually, but what am I, what's, what's happening inside of me as I'm trying to formulate that answer? Am I feeling conflicted? Well, I shouldn't be, but I kind of am. Am I feeling nervous to say yes because I know I really shouldn't? What's happening inside of you? Try and connect with that emotion. If you will, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. I want to talk about that this reality. As we turn here, let me ask this follow-up question. One of the things that I think people look in at the church for and say they're full of, what is it again? Hypocrites, right? You look in and say they're full of hypocrites, is often because we misunderstand what a Christian is. I mean, if I ask you this morning to define, if you just pulled out your, your a piece of paper and wrote down a definition to hypocrite, um, or, or, I'm sorry, a definition to Christian, what would you write? What is a Christian? And what a lot of people begin to think is, well, a Christian is a person who prayed a prayer. A Christian is a person who believes in Jesus. A Christian is a person who thinks different, who votes different, who has an, a worldview that's different, a person, a person who has different values and lives different. That's a lot of times what we begin to think of as a Christian. And I think that's why then the hypocrite discussion takes center stage. But is that what a Christian is? What makes a Christian different from a non-Christian? Have you ever thought about that? If, you had, if I brought two people up here this morning and one of them is a Christian and one of them is a non-Christian, what would the difference be between those two people? Have you ever thought about this? What is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Titus hits the answer to this square on. Now, Titus, just for those of you that may be new to the Bible, let me introduce you to this letter. It's actually a letter titled Titus. It's written to a guy named Titus. Titus grew up in the island of Crete, out in the Mediterranean. Beautiful area, a place where I'd love to be one day. Gorgeous climate, gorgeous environment. But he was a Greek. He's a non-Jew. He didn't grow up in a Jewish background, which is... You know, Jesus and all his disciples that kind of come out of the Jewish faith tradition. Titus did not. 
Titus converts to be a Christ follower. He converted, uh, kind of the, 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 the belief is that a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul led him to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is the writer of this, and for those of you, just kind of get us all on the same page, so we're kind of operating from the same sheet of music. The Apostle Paul, here's who he, he was one of the most brilliant religious minds of his day. He had a PhD in religion. He came out of the Jewish tradition. Uh, he, he um, it was Jesus, kind of was doing his thing. Paul's standing up and taking notice, and is like, now wait a minute, wait a minute. This Jesus guy is way off base, and he's leading the Jews astray. So Paul made it his mission to eradicate anyone associated with Jesus. Matter of fact, if Paul were still alive today, his name was actually Saul at that time. He had a name change. So if Saul of Tarsus was alive today and he was here in the paradise area, you would be scared to death to be here where we're at. Because it would be his mission to come in here and destroy this place. He would probably start with Tim and take that pretty shiny bald head right off his body. Gruesome, I know. He hated anything associated with Christ. Now, there comes a moment where he's on, on a mission out to this place called Damascus, and, and this, this bright light shines, and he hears a voice from heaven, and, and, it's, and it's basically the voice says, why do you persecute me, Saul? Saul meets Jesus. <laughs> he then goes, and the story is told. He it, Paul, uh, tells a story in a letter to Galatia. He tells the story of going out into the wilderness for three years, being with Jesus for three years. He comes back into town and then makes it his mission to advance the cause of Jesus. He starts planting churches all over the Middle, all over we would know as the Middle East, just all over the Mediterranean coast. He goes on these missions journeys, and every place he goes, he tries to, he wants to see people come to Jesus and establish this thing called a church. So Titus, Paul is now at the, towards the end of his life. He's facing the reality that the end is here. And I want to make sure, he, this is kind of his thought process, that the church continues. That it gets to where we are today. We're, we're the beneficiary of guys like Paul. We sit here today because of this letter to Titus. He's writing to a young pastor and saying to this young pastor, Hey Titus, here's what you need to know about how to lead a church. Here's what I want you to absolutely be certain on. And so he talks about leadership. He talks about how to appoint leaders. He talks about the importance of leadership. They're called elders, and he lays that out, and he works through some other things. He also writes a letter to Timothy in the same vein. Timothy is Jewish, so he kind of a little different flavors between the two. But he wraps his letter up in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. As I was putting this talk together, I almost stopped right there and thought, oh my goodness, do we ever need those two verses in the church today? I mean, I just, those verses, if we would live them out, I am, a, I am just astounded at the caustic, nasty communication that comes out of my mouth at times towards some of our elected officials. And that I read on social media and the way that we just tear people apart. Now, what's fascinating is look at, I want to keep, much as I'd love to preach those two verses, I'll let that up to Tim and Greg and Kevin and... Look at verse 3. 
Paul's going to tell Titus kind of, hey, this is why it's important to show true humility towards all people. Why? Because verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in, mal- we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So see what he's saying? Hey, keep this in mind, Titus. You look out and you want to judge and you want to call them out and, 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 and it makes sense. But keep in mind, you were just like them. But what happened? What made the change? Look at the next verse. But, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, kindness and love, of God our Savior appeared. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Why? Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. You see what He's saying? He's saying, so you look out at the world and you want to tear them apart. You live over here in a very, you live very different. And we can begin to think we got here because of our choices, because of our good works, because of our, our morality. But Titus, keep in mind, that's not how you got here. Someone showed up in your life. Someone displayed a lot of love to you and mercy. And he reached out to you and pulled you in, not because you were lovable and good and moral and righteous, but because he was merciful. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So how did you become a Christ follower? If you're in this room and you're a Christ follower, how did you become a Christ follower? Do you know how most of us answer? Well, here's my answer. (laughs) When I was five, I came home from church one night, and we watched an awful Awful end times movie. Those of you who are children of the 80s, do you remember these movies? They were awful, but they did their job. They scared the hell out of me, it's literally. And I'm like, I want nothing to do with that place. I want to make sure that when Jesus comes back, I am not left here, right? So I come home and I say to my dad, Dad, how do I avoid that place called hell? And he says, Well, let's pray a prayer. So when I tell people I became a Christian, I say, I prayed a prayer. But is that how I became a Christian? What does Titus say? How did I become a Christian? Whose work was it? God, the Holy Spirit poured out on me lavishly, saving me, reaching me, bringing me in. Verse 7, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs. Meaning we're brought into His family. I'm adopted, I am, I am written into his will, I cannot be taken out, I am there. And having the hope of eternal life. Wow. That is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. That is the difference. Matter of fact, here's what I wrote down. If you're in this room this morning, and you say, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christian, You have more in common than you don't with a non-Christian. Do you realize that? You have more in common than you don't. Your humanity 
The reality of who you are has more in common with a person who's not a Christ follower, who's not sitting in a place where you're sitting this morning, than you don't have in common. There's really only one difference. Really only one. What is it? What's the only difference? Jesus. It is the only difference. Now, mind you, it is a really big difference. It is a life-changing, eternal life-changing difference. But that is the only difference. So some of you say, but Adam, but Adam, but Adam, look in the text. The text says you were this, but now you're this. So the difference really is we live different, Adam. And I say, yes, that's the fruit of the difference, but it's not the difference. It's not what defines Christianity. When I say, give me a definite Christianity, the answer should be, it is the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ bestowed upon me, not because of righteous things I have done, but because of his mercy and his love poured out on me by the Holy Spirit. That is what a Christian is. Now, look at verse 8. This was the verse. When people would ask me as a pastor, Adam, what is your philosophy of ministry? Specifically, what is your philosophy of preaching? This is the verse I would give them. Titus 3.8. By the way, those of you who love church history, Titus 3 was Martin Luther. You know Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, the guy who stapled the theses on the door and took on the Catholic Church 500 years ago. This, Titus 3, was his favorite chapter in the Bible. He didn't like James. He, matter of fact, the rumor is he tore James out of his Bible because he just didn't like it. Titus 3, he loved. Titus 3, 8, look at it. This is a trustworthy saying. What is a trustworthy saying? Well, let's go back. What did he just say? What did he just get done saying? It's God's mercy and love by the Holy Spirit just poured out on you. This is a trustworthy saying, Titus. Paul's writing to Titus. Titus, I want you, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. Let this come alive. Let it come off the pages for you. See, a lot of times we have this thought that what, I, what, what Paul just shared about the mercy and love of God being poured out in the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit visiting you is for who? The Christian or the non-Christian? Who? If I ask you, who should that message be preached to week in and week out? What would you tell me if you're honest? The non-Christian. That is a message to get people in. That is a message to get people to accept Jesus. That's for Billy Graham to do. That's for the evangelist, Luis Palau, to step out and preach that message. But look at what he says. Who's it actually for? Look at verse 8 again. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you, so this is like Tim. Okay, this is written to Tim as your pastor. Tim, I want you, I want you, Tim, to stress these things so that those who have what? How many of you in this room, don't, don't show your hand up, but would identify yourselves as someone who's trusted in God and you're a Christ follower? This message is what Tim should be preaching to you every single week. You say, well, I already know Jesus. That's old hat. That's really old, okay? I, I, I prayed that prayer a long time ago. But he says, I want you to stress this to them. 
Look at why. Let me go back to the verse again. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what? What is good. Ultimately, that's the fruit of Christianity. It's not what defines Christianity. It's the fruit that flows out of Christianity. How do you become a good person? You say, well, I try. I work harder. I make goals. I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I'd say, wrong answer. Those things are all very important. But you know how you become a good person? You preach to your heart every single day. Without Jesus, I am lost. You find new ways to refresh your spirit every morning and every evening with God's love and God's mercy that's been lavished on you. And when your heart gets it, not your head, your heart gets it, it's a natural movement then. When you love someone, what do you do? You serve them. You serve those that you love. So the natural movement is, well, I understand what's been given to me. It says in the Scripture, he's been forgiven much, loves much. Now I'm going to devote myself to serving that God who lavished his love on me. And it's the fruit of a Christian life, not the difference. And then he says, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's when he says, and, okay, it's for those of you who are Christ followers, and it's for those all people. So we have more in common than we don't. Now, this changed my life. Radically changed my life. I want to tell you the story because I, I preach that and some of you, I see some of you right now, some of you actually are sleeping. But look around. That's okay. They may have had a really long night last night. I get it. That's cool. I understand. They may have stayed up and watched the first college football game. Football is back. Come on, right? You guys excited? Okay. Football's back. I'm excited. I see one hand back there. There we go. There's one. One football fan in the whole house. Okay. I'm a Miami Dolphins fan too, by the way. Just throw that out there. I like to kind of throw that out because I know this is Eagles Nation. I understand that. And I know what, why do you got to hate on me anyway? When I say this, I'm a Dolphins fan. Everyone always gets all over me. And I say, why are you getting on me? We're awful. We are so bad. We're predicted this year to be in the top five worst teams in the league. So give me some love. I mean, it's, it's and honestly, it's the thing I'll say, I'm way off track here. I know, but honestly, the Dolphins, their colors are just cool. I mean, that's like, when I, when I tried, if everyone says, how did you become a Dolphins fan? I say, well, I'm a child of the 80s, and that teal and orange was like the way to go. And so I'm like, that's what I'm going to wear. And I, I, anyway, back to what I was saying. This changed my life. <laughs> Sorry. Completely changed my life. I want to tell you the story of how it changed my life because you hear these words in, in, a, in a book that's written thousands of years ago and sometimes you're like, yeah, but I want, to, I want to make it real for you. I want to connect the dots by sharing my story and hopefully maybe some of you can relate and hear my story and say, oh, that's how it worked. That's how it worked for you and maybe some of you can start to hang a hat on it for yourself. Um, it changed my life when I, I shared with you in the past, I was here this past spring, and I think I shared this detail for those of you who weren't here. Um, I prayed that prayer at age five. By high school, I was like, forget it. 
Um, I want nothing to do with this thing called Christianity. And the number one reason I walked away, the number one reason, if you asked me then, was my youth leader, the, the, uh, I, I grew up in this large church. My grandfather was one of the founding members of this church. And um, back in the, the, it's now the North Group of all things, North Group Consulting, the group that hired me to come in. When I went for my interview, I went into the building, the Lititz Rec Center, where the church started years ago. Um, so anyway, so that's where the church was. My grandfather's part of it. And I walked away because my youth leader, I would see at the parties on Friday night, drunk, and standing in front of us on Sunday morning, preaching at us to live different. And I was like, forget you. If I'm going to do it, I'm just going to tell people I'm going to do it and be legit. I thought I was being genuine and sincere, and I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And <laughs> Yeah, right. That's kind of where I went. Now, I share with you in the past that got, life got miserable for me. I attempted suicide. Praise God, it didn't stick. I go get help, and I go up to a Bible school where my younger sister was attending. The kind of My whole goal was i got to get things turned around. I just have to get my life figured out. I wasn't going there to be a pastor or a missionary or do any of that stuff. I just simply wanted to get my life turned around, figured out. As things start to happen for me, and I start to fall in love with this person named Jesus and really start to see the scriptures come alive in my life, I was coming home for break one time, and my youth pastor reached out to me and said, Adam, well, you're going to be home. Would you mind preaching kind of doing the lesson for the, for the student ministry. I said, yeah, I'll, do, I'll give that a shot. Roughly 150 teenagers that I was going to be speaking to. So I come home. I worked really hard in the message. I wrote all these notes, and I was praying about it, and my heart was pounding as I walked up on the stage, and I stood out, and I about vomited right then and there, and I was so nervous, and I'm like, oh, my. And I just let loose and did it. I was sweating like crazy. I come off. I'm all done. I, I um, feeling strong. I think the kids were engaged. I think they enjoyed it. And if you had asked me in that moment when I got off the stage, I stepped down off the stage. It was a little platform just like this. And if you had stopped me and put a microphone, okay, football, you know, you always get the, right, after the, right after the game, you know, you get someone right there. So, so, hey, how? If you would have done that with me as the quarterback and said, okay, tell me, let's interview you about this victory. How did it go for you? And I would have told you, I was here today to glorify God. I was here today to do what God asked me to do. I was here today to reach people far from God. I was here today to help the scriptures come alive to young people sitting in the seats that I was in. And you would have heard all these great things, and you would have said, high five, Adam, way to go. And it probably would have gone viral, and you would have all been like, man, this guy is awesome. Well, here's what, you, what I didn't pay attention to is I left that stage, started walking up the side, Someone that meant a lot to me in my life. The only adult youth leader that really touched me in a place beyond my head. Puts his arm around me. Pulls me in tight. And says, way to go. You did a great job. What I wasn't acknowledging in that moment was the two realities that existed inside of me. All of us have them. I had this beautiful God-birthed um, vision inside of me to honor Him. But guess what else I had inside of me? Insecurity. And a lot of darkness. See, from my early years, I, I struggled in high school. I struggled in school. Remember the, the, the small private school I went to, IU 13, back in the day, they, they would bring this, um, our 
RV around, and, and those who had learning disabilities were not Title I and all that stuff wasn't even a thing. I mean, it, I mean, no one, and they treated kids with learning disabilities far different than they do today. And I'd get called out of class, so over the, over the loudspeaker would come to class, where they'd say, hey, the, whatever it was called is here for Adam Nagel. And I'd have to get up out of my seat and walk through the entire class with all my friends looking at me. To this day, I still have it. I should probably just burn it. I know every time I say this, people say to me, Adam, get rid of this. I I still have issues. I'll I'll work through this. I still to this day have the notes written up by that IU-13 sent to my parents that said, Adam struggles with fine motor skill development. Adam stutters and struggles with speech. English was awful, and I can't spell. I I say can't because I still can't. That never got over that one. So from early on, I had this insecurity in me of I am stupid. I graduated from Warwick High School with a 2.75, and I was proud of that. Let me tell you, a high, solid C average. I was like, yes, I can go to college now. I mean, this was great. I struggled. So what I wasn't acknowledging I acknowledge this passion that was burning inside of me for God and to love him. But what I wasn't paying attention to was when that guy pulled me in and said, way to go inside of me, my ego just puffed up and said, thank you. I needed to hear that. My whole life I've been fighting insecurity. Both are true. And this is why I say you have more in common than you don't. Because you know what I've come to learn? Christians in this room right now are struggling with insecurity, with pornography, sexual identity and issues. Christians in this room right now are struggling with depression and anxiety. Christians in this room right now are struggling with your finances and with peace and with, you go on down the list. And it's no different than those that are outside of the church. They're struggling with the very same things. You're no different. The difference is how we struggle and can we name it. And up until that point, I couldn't name it. All I ever named and all I ever really focused on was this God-birthed goodness that was in me. Now, through life, and I wish I had time to tell you the whole story, and it involves part of my marriage, and the wheels started coming off the bus in my life and in, a, in a way that I praise God for now. At the time, it was very painful and very difficult. But through a long set of circumstances, I finally sit down with a person called a... Men, I know some of you are going, you did this? I went to a... Where'd I go? Counselor, right? Some of you are going, oh my goodness... There's such a stigma around that. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is. But I sat down with a counselor. And I started a journey to say, I need help. There's something truly off with me. And I'm hurting the people that I love most. What do I need to do? So he starts pulling back the layers. And he starts saying to me, Adam, you're incredibly insecure. Now, my wife had begun to learn this. She didn't know this when she married me. She saw saw the guy that was on the stage. She saw the guy in the, on the post-game interview that was given all the right answers. But she was beginning to see someone at home when that insecurity was rearing its head and it was ugly. 
And so this counselor starts walking with me and starts pushing in on me with the message, in essence, that, well, he didn't use Titus 3, but the message of Titus 3. Adam, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be in Jesus and Jesus in you? What does it mean when it says in Romans 8.1, those that are in Jesus, therefore there is now no condemnation. Adam, what does that really mean? And I wrestled and I struggled and it was a long, long, this didn't happen overnight. So I please have patience for one another. You're, we're all on a journey. Here's what I came to realize. The more I grew as a Christian, the more darkness I saw. I had this idea that when I, I'm going to arrive one day, right? That's what my, how I thought. If I just do my quiet time, read my Bible, pray, give to the poor, give a 10%, go to church, that I'm going to eventually get to this point where, yeah, I'm still a sinner. Of course, I know that. But I'm going to arrive. Well, what I was finding, <laughs> the more I grew, the darker I looked. Like, what is wrong with this? And I began to lose hope and try Finally, the day came. I'll never forget it. I'm sitting with, again, counselor, and he says, he's talking to me about pain. And you know, when you look at life and you look at the things that we struggle with, behind hurts or behind your habits, behind your hang-ups, is often what? Pain. We medicate. Now, I medicate. I'm on level 4,480-something right now in Candy Crush. <laughs> Some of you are going, did he just own that? <laughs> See, I used to really feel bad about that, but then I found out you can sell. You can sell your account. So now it's a business venture to me. I'm not medicated anymore. I'm getting to level 5,000, so I can get $500. I told my kids, if you can score $500 on me in this account, I'll give you a 50%. I'll give you, not a 50% cut. I'll give you a 10% cut. So you get, I said that way wrong. They're, they're going to get $50. So they both screenshotted my account and got it, on, got it on eBay, and they've been working and trying to sell my account. So anyway, but we medicate, right? We, we medicate. Some of it's harmful, drugs and alcohol. Some of it's overeating. Some of it's binge-watching. But what, so I kind of knew that, but what I didn't realize is we also cope by developing patterns in our life. So there was this moment where um, the counselor is talking to me. He says, Adam, one of your, your coping mechanisms with pain is you begin to control your life. And he started talking about all these things, and he's talking. I'm sitting here, my eyes are getting bigger, and this connection is happening. Oh, my word. He's describing my life as a leader. So I said to him, I said, well, okay, I hear you, but aren't those things leadership traits and qualities? He said, yeah, but they're also coping mechanisms. For whatever reason, God chose that day to crash into my life. I remember getting silent the rest of the, the, rest of the session. I don't remember a thing he said the rest of the time. I wrote some things down. I get in my car. The minute the door shut, the radio came on. There was a song on the radio, and it was like a fountain of just let loose. I bawled the entire way home. I realized, oh my goodness. And here's the first thought that hit me. What if I'm not a leader? What if I've been a poser this whole time and my insecurity has been driving me to do things that others say, oh, he's a leader, putting me in roles where I really don't belong and hurting people in the process. And it crushed me. 
And I was ready to go quit the ministry I was in. I was ready to go home. And I mean, I just didn't know. My world started spinning. I come in a week later, and I tell him this, and he starts laughing. Very encouraging when you get a counselor that does that. Like you're laughing at my pain. He says, Adam, you're a leader. You don't need to worry about that. You're an insecure leader. It's both. And I had to learn, the hard thing to learn is to hold both. To hold both and let them both be true. Here's what I want to end. Don't turn here, just let me read it to you. Just even, maybe even shut your eyes and listen to it. If that helps, tune out, just listen to this. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, again, the Apostle Paul who wrote Titus, I just want to read you this, this letter here. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for I want to do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not good, is not the good I want to do. No, the evil, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, Adam, when you got off that stage, both were true. You had a desire to do good, and that is beautiful. That is God working in you. It is you honoring the law. But what was also true is I walked up the side. I had a lot of insecurity raging in there too. Now Paul says this and he goes on and he, and he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now listen to his answer. Listen to his answer. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me? This is the Apostle Paul asking this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Preach that to your heart. You have this war inside of you. What I began to realize, here, here's, here's one of the hats, I, the hooks I hang my hat on. And it gives, maybe this will help. I began to realize I had to stop just repenting of the sin that I did. You know what I had to start repenting of? The good that I was doing. Because so often the good that I was doing was driven by my insecurity to get a pat on the back. And what I find, Christians miss this. Matter of fact, matter of fact if you think about Jesus' life, who went to war with Jesus? Who hated the guy? Who was it? The religious or the non-religious? It was the religious. Religion becomes a mechanism of saving ourselves. See, the message of Jesus is you need to die to yourself and let me work. 
You need to pick up your cross and follow me. Well, religion says, no, I can save myself. I'm a good guy. I give to the poor. I serve. I, and Jesus steps in and says, no, you're justifying yourself. Religious people hate it. The religious people are like, no, 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 because it is pushing you inward to say, what's happening in there? That's why I come back when I ask you, are you a hypocrite? Some of you just said yes. <laughs> Praise God. That means you have a good pastor who's been teaching you well. Praise God. I love to hearing that. Honestly, that's a, that's a cool answer. This lot, number of people said yes. I'm like, yes. But how did you feel when you said it? Are you comfortable saying it? Can you own it? Can you repent of the good things that you do, not just the bad things that you do? Can you really go to bed at night and say, you know what? Because I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christian, it's grace and mercy, period. I have no condemnation. I can go to bed at peace. Let me read you one more. People at times will tell me, I've had people tell me Romans 7, these, these scholar guys will come up and say, Romans 7 is Paul before he met Jesus. And I'm like, oh, blah, 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 blah. I just kind of have no patience for it. I'm like, really? That's what you think? Okay, okay, I'll give that to you. He's describing an unregenerated life. Okay. Well, then let's go to 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, where Paul says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of who I am the worst. There isn't a single English translation that renders it in the past tense because the Greek is in present tense. I currently, present day, am the worst sinner who Jesus came to die for. Paul understood this deeply. Paul understood how even though he was a Christ follower, even though he was like the super apostle, even though he wore like the, the cape of all the apostles and wrote all kinds of books of our Bible, even though that was Paul, he understood that he was the worst sinner. And out of that flowed good works. Out of that generated a beautiful life. Out of that came all that Paul accomplished, but it started him understanding he was a sinner because he who is forgiven much loves much. That's how it works. He who has been forgiven much loves much. So when people say to me, Adam, I'm not a part of the church because it's full of hypocrites, you know what I've learned to say to them? You're right. Amen. And we could use one more. <laughs> Come join me. Right here in the nice, guys, this is, those, everyone sits back there. I don't understand this. These seats right here are padded, right? So, so my family's sitting right here. Okay, we have Ava, my wife, Tanya, my son, Luke, and here's Eden, my daughter, my oldest daughter, and then Zach, my youngest son. Good looking bunch because they're related to their mom. <laughs> you ask them if I'm a hypocrite. Pull them aside after church. They've heard me preach and say things that they watch me live different. They see me in my darkest. They've seen me angry. Not proud of it. They've seen me make coarse jokes at times. Not proud of it. They've seen me laugh at things I would preach on a stage you shouldn't be laughing at. But here's what I've come to learn. Integrity is not the measure of the Christian life. 
know what the measure of the Christian life is? Joy. Gratitude. Love. Do you know where that flows from? Understanding that the only thing that separates me from a person who's not a Christian is God's grace and mercy. And that's it. And when I understand that I am broken and I'm still insecure, boy, I've fought it a lot and I've, I've oh, man, I've grown so much in it. But when I understand that and I can still daily come to the place where I say, yes, God, I am a sinner. Thank you for your grace. What it creates in me is joy. So my thing is, joyless Christians, it's an oxymoronic statement. You can't have it. It doesn't make sense. Hypocrisy isn't the measure. Joy is. Now, I want to close in prayer. Before I do it, I want to give you, I, uh, do I want, yeah, I'd want to do this. Um, I was actually going to type this up and hand it to you and let you take it home, but I want to give you an assignment this week to really push in on this. Write down for me, if you will, if you, if you want to take this challenge. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 22. And then also write down Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. And here's what I'm giving. Pay attention to these verses. I don't think, in, in my reading of the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, I have a hard time finding any verses where you are told to do something moral that are not in the context of the gospel message. I, I can't find them yet. Now, let's not say they're not there. I'm still young in my faith and growing. But 1 Peter and Ephesians 5 are the ones that I keep running across. So 1 Peter 1, when you read it this week, I, want, I don't want to share too much, but I just want you to really pay attention to this. Notice it's going to say, be holy for I am holy. That's the morality. Go be moral. Be holy. Matter of fact, verse 17 is even going to say, I judge. So you go like, oh my goodness, i got to go be good. That's what a Christian is. But if you continue reading the motivation to get that behavior, Peter talks all about the ransom of Je that Jesus, the price that Jesus paid for you. So that's what I mean. As you read the New Testament, every time you find a behavior pushed on, so that's what a lot of times, get, get what I'm saying? A lot of times we think Christianity is doing all this stuff. Being good, that's what makes a Christian different from a non-Christian. And here's what I've learned. I, I know a lot of non-Christians who live better than Christians I know. That's not what makes us different. Ephesians 5 is another one. You read it. Pay attention to these kind of things. It says, the sexually immoral, the greedy, those who make coarse jokes, will not inherit the kingdom of God. When you read it, you're like, oh my goodness. And then you continue reading, it says, God will not excuse this behavior, and his anger falls on you. And you're like, oh my goodness. And that's where we get pastors who stand and don't listen to Paul and Titus, and they preach at people, quit having sex outside of marriage. And they'll pound it and pound it, and you start to think, well, that's what makes a Christian. A Christian is a person who only has sex with their spouse. Well, 
you can't get to verses 3 to 6 without going through verse 1. It says, be imitators of God as his dearly loved, what? Children. You can't get to chapter 5 without getting through chapters 1 and 2, which are nothing but God choosing and his grace and his mercy. I, to this day, I cannot find a command in the scripture that's not written in the context of grace. I haven't found it yet. Now, some of you may come up afterwards and say, I got one for you, Adam. I would love to hear it. Please come up and talk to me. But actually, I'd love to encourage you. Take that away and preach grace to your heart every morning and every evening. Can I pray for you? God, I love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for Tim and the leadership. Thank you. God, I love, I love, I love when hearing when I say you hypocrites and get a strong resounding yes. How cool is that? This is, that tells me this church gets this. This church gets what it means. So the difference between a Christian and a non is, is simply you, your son, Jesus. God, thank you for Jesus. God, I pray right now for those in this room, maybe walked in here uncertain of the relationship with you, questioning, wrestling, maybe fearful of death or fearful of, of, of some impending doom that's hanging out over them with anxiety or I don't know what it might be. God, would you whisper to their heart right now that, that they would know and hear you in a way that says, come home, my child. Find rest. Find my grace. God, would they get comfortable with just stepping out and saying, I'm a sinner and I'm so lost. And God, would they receive that free gift of grace? Would they trust you? God, would they trust you? Would they choose to say, I'm here to follow you, Jesus. I'm here to follow you. God, for those in the room that are here, and God, they're Christ followers. Got to look out in this crowd. There's probably some in this room that have been walking with Jesus for 50, 60 years. God, I praise you for that. And God, I pray for us in that category that we wouldn't become moralistic people. God, I want us to do good works. You want us to do good works. But God, would that be the fruit of our life? God, would the motivator be it would be just the beauty and the reality of basking in your grace and love. God, would your love bestowed to the person of Jesus, given to us in the person of the Holy Spirit, would we never tire of that? God, whether we're 80 or whether we're 18, God, would that message grip our heart afresh and anew? And if it's not, would we fight for it to come back? Would we not just slip into this kind of casual Christian existence of just doing the next right thing, but would we fight and fight and fight to see your grace and not rest until we do? God, help us on that battle because it is a battle. There's an enemy of our soul, and that sin still lives in our bodies. And God, it is weary and it is hard we're broken sinners. As Paul says, he's the worst of them all. God, would we fight well. Give us the strength. God, thanks for this church. Would you bless them? Bless Tim and his leadership. In Jesus' name.